Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I see myself very much as in conversation with language. So it's not a set of kind of um, structures and words that I need to master. I will always be a kindergartner in the great power and presence of our language. Nadi Simpson on language, land and water. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Storytelling is something close to my heart. It's a powerful way to engage broader audiences, to share joyful and inspiring stories, but also darker narratives and disturbing histories that need to be understood. Nadi Simpson started storytelling through song as a musician in the duo Stiff Gins, but in 2014 she started a new journey in writing. Her debut novel, Song of the Crocodile, was released in 2020. It weaves Uwalari storytelling traditions with some pretty evocative writing. Nadi's now working on her second historical fiction. This one's inspired by the baby daughter of Barangaroo and Benelong, two seminal figures in Australian history. But she also continues to expand her musical talents and has become proficient in her traditional language, Uwalari, and that's my language too. So, Nadi Simpson, my countrywoman, welcome to Speaking Out. Larissa, it's beautiful to talk to you and see you and be around. I'm so looking forward to our chat today, but I want to start. I usually ask people this when the audience might not know them as well as I do. So, I was wondering if you could share with us where you grew up and what shaped your worldview and your values, and particularly your love of storytelling. Mm. Um, I grew up on Gadigal country in saltwater lands and sandstone and shell places and I inherit the opposite from my father and I always credit Gadigal country and Warrane and Sydney as teaching me how to be a strong Uwalari woman because I was enrolled at Sydney Uni but I kept walking past the gates and down to um, the harbour, and just looking at tiny little bits of beach and foreshore, things that were under buildings and in crevices, and sitting there and understanding how that part of place worked and trying to connect to that. So reading beneath all the um, glass and the brick and the metal and that slow time that I spent down at the harbour enabled me to understand how to just be in a place and how to listen and slow down and speak without talking and listen actively to country. So when I was mobile and had my licence and everything, going up to Wild and Lightning Ridge, I kind of had a framework in how to be in place as a cultural person. So I thank Gadigal for growing me up uh, to be strong freshwater woman. So, when do, where did your love of music come from? And it's really interesting to me because I see you now as somebody that's very involved with language and storytelling. And music is both a way to tell stories and it's a language. Yeah. I always had music around me and I think my ear was the sharpest part. You know, I sort of moved through the world led by my ear, so oral speaking and um, sound and melody uh, and not even music but sound in its naturally occurring state was my language and when I was able to um, delve into making sound, I was lucky because 
from dad's side, the family, everyone, you know, pick up a guitar and play anything that they hear straight away. And from mum's side, there was this sort of practice of uh, playing and learning and musicianship in that formal kind of Western way. So all of those things kind of flowed through me in varying degrees so that I was able to use music and sound as a way to make meaning in my world and to make relationships and connections. And you need a good story to make music. Uh, And it's really beautiful. You know, there's uh, a beautiful kind of discussion that words and sound have with each other and story, then story becomes a big boss and shows you the way. So for me, it's just kind of, it's like I'm in the water and my feet are tinkling, you know, at the edge and I'm sort of wading through where language and words and sound wash into each other. That's how I see it. I'm pretty sure when I first, the first time I met you was when you were with the Stiff Gins. I think if there was a time before then, probably, but I just, and maybe it's because your music meant so much to me and my generation. Um, you know, one of the very few um, female First Nations musicians that was performing around at a time when we didn't hear ourselves on the radio, didn't hear our stories. Um, so it was very, very powerful and always sort of felt very strong. Like the thing about your music that, that at that time that re- really spoke to me was it represented the strength in Aboriginal women that I'd grown up seeing in the community. And I think it had that impact on a lot of my peer group. So when you look back on that time for you, because, you know, we were a bit younger then, not you're a bit younger. Um, how do you see that period of your life? And were you really aware at the time of how groundbreaking what you were doing was and what it meant to people? I think we were lucky because we were a, a bunch of friends that were exploring things together. So, And we we went to Eora Centre down in Redfern and we were trying to make a career. So we weren't really engaged with, this sounds, you know, terrible, but it's true, what was going on outside of the bubble of the music making. But we did know and feel that the three and then two black women in the band, in the group, were producing everything. All the sound was basically us. And I think we started to understand that that was a strong way to be and a good achievement, you know, that there were other wonderful First Nations performers with, you know, small and big bands and um, people who were feeding their songwriting and feeding their producing and their recording, but it was just us. And I think that sort of smallness um, concentrated any strength that we were feeling or trying to generate or work with. So now, like, I'm proud. We're still kicking. You know, people say, oh, Stiff Gins, um, you used to be in the Stiff Gins. I say, yeah, we're still kicking. <laughs> yeah, we're 23 this year and I think Amazing. we, apart from the beautiful Mill Sisters up in the Torres Strait and also in Darwin, um, the other Mill Sisters, we're the longest running all Aboriginal female group in Australia. They've got 20 years on us, but still still performing. And I think that longevity is something that now we place our value in. doesn't matter about where songs go and who knows them, but just doing it is the thing that keeps us strong and happy. The evolution of your storytelling in some ways feels quite natural that you would then tackle the writing of a book. And I think a lot of people who saw you as a musician maybe thought that that was a very different path for you to go down. But I think if you see yourself as a story, see you as a storyteller, then your book Song of the Crocodile was in some ways a natural progression, but it's a very different medium. What were some of the challenges or creative approaches you took to move from the encapsulation of story by song into an ambitious, beautiful, very culturally grounded book? I wanted to do it, first of all, because I saw in my song making that, you know, the thing that I was good at musically was telling a story. And sometimes that meant that songs were kind of a little bit too long or moved a little bit differently than what 
people's ears are used to hearing. And so I thought, I've got to write something longer here. And it was feeling also that my music making was kind of closing down and that I couldn't progress or get better or have any movement in that. I sort of thought, I know all the chords I'm ever going to know. And I sort of feel I'm a person that feels the need for momentum. So I kind of thought I was packing that away and starting up this new kind of creative career. The story was flowing just because I was ready to go in that way at that time until I got to a point where I got really stuck and beautiful Grace Lucas Pennington, who was helping me up in uh, State Library Queensland, we were stuck at a point, I was stuck. And she said, Nadi, what if I said to you, where's the music in this? Where's the song? And when she said that, I thought, you dummy, you've been trying to keep this stuff away. Bring that forward and let it help what you're doing. So that's when I stopped being, oh, as they'd say in Wild, get jealous to myself and <laughs> let those things talk to each other rather than me saying I'm not this and I am that now. So it was just a beautiful gift that Grace gave me to say, bring what you know into uh, what you're doing and do it that way. So I was really grateful that she encouraged me to let those things um, bleed into each other. Otherwise, never would have finished any book and probably wouldn't have gone back to music. It's so fascinating and because there's such a distinctive voice within that book, so you've really kind of found, found that. Given that it was such a long, difficult birth, so to speak, what did it feel like when it came out? And getting such strong critical acclaim for it. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I thought to myself because I didn't know. I don't know how those industries work. You know, scary to think. And I thought they've only got to print three of these. <laughs> Should I tell them I need one for Mum, um, and one for <laughs> one for Walgett Community College in the library, and it can sit there, just on in the library, and one at Lightning Ridge high school. That's all. And I thought that was my measure of success because for me, it's a work of fiction, but it's also, it's also something recognisable to who I am and where I'm from. And to have those things just sit there and maybe one day someone go and look at it and think, hey, I know, I know that. I know that word. I, I I know that way of speaking. I know that way of thinking. That's enough for me. So everything outside of that, people and people are very generous in how they talk about it. But, you know, if I could make something that meant something to the people and the place that I'm from, that's what I'm interested in doing. That's the, the greatest gift for me. And actually I'll just very quickly my – and. My dad's one of 11 and I thought, actually, well, I've got to bump up the numbers here and um, give all my uncles and aunties one. And then I thought, but then I didn't want to feel like, oh, here you go, aunt, here's my book, you know, that's a weird thing. So I just l- let it rest and then I heard that my auntie had got the audio book and she'd sit on her bed and listen to it with her, her granddaughter and they'd say they'd listen to it and they'd do little chapters with each other and I thought, if that, if my words can help that happen between those two people, that makes me full. That's that's enough for me. I still get non-Indigenous people come up to me or talking to me. We obviously talk about books a lot and identify your book as something that they've actually sometimes still read recently, even though, you know, it came out a couple of years ago, and that it has had a profound impact on them. So I know it's not something that you that you're like you've just given a very clear account of the audience that you're kind of writing to but and it must be a bit the same with your music that actually a flow on from it is that there is a broader audience out there that you're very gently bringing in to our culture and our issues and it strikes me at this point in our time when we have national debates going on that that's no small thing do you feel the responsibility of that or do you feel like that's an important secondary audience that you're speaking to? I'm secretly proud of, I think with the singing, the best way to answer that is with our singing, we make people feel good and us, you know, also. And 
we know how to work an audience and move them in a, over a set that can challenge a little bit but also um, reward the listening. But in my writing, I, I'm quite happy to confront in different ways and I just allow that to be unresolved and I'm learning quickly that the more questions you ask in your writing, the more people are interested in it and you leave space for people and sometimes, you you know, it's a big thing for me to not have to explain and educate everyone but to allow the un, unknowing as much as the knowing. So I'm glad that I now have that outlet, creative outlet, where I don't have to answer but I can provoke in ways that look after people but, you know, I laugh, you know, some, sometimes I Google once something about Song of the Crocodile. I was looking for something and it said, what is, you know, what is Song of the Crocodile? Uh, what is the meaning? What's the, what's the end? What's the meaning of Song of the Crocodile? What's the end mean? And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I've written this whole book and people are Googling what it means. Don't read the comments. <laughs> yeah. But then I thought, actually, I'm happy because I don't know what the end means. That The end moves into this big story, creation story for us. So my little thing's a footnote into the real business. And so just that space to wonder and think keeps it alive in a way that I'm happy I can do creatively, but also, you know, I'm proud that I can provoke and allow space for people to reflect on things greater than between on pages and things like that, yeah. That's Nadi Simpson, writer, singer and my countrywoman. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. Coming up, we've got more beautiful wise words from my chat with Nadi Simpson. But first, let's go back in time and listen to one of her songs from the Stiff Gins. This is Going Home, released in 2011. Realize what I've done, I've forgotten them. Is it too late to start again? They're waiting for me to remember them. Just a phone call away to come up and stay. It's a long drive into the bush and the riverside. Ghost stories left and right. They keep me up all night, sleeping in my room with the bright green walls. It's so quiet here, no sound at all. I'm home. 
That's the Stiff Gins with their song Going Home. I've got one half of the Stiff Gins in the studio with me. A few years ago, Nadi Simpson thought her songs were getting too long, so she decided it was time to branch out into novels. Song of the Crocodile has been critically acclaimed and widely read. Now Nadi's working hard on her second historical fiction work. This time it's about the daughter of Barangaroo and Benelong. I have to share this because when you were writing Song of the Crocodile, which I have a very um, personal connection to, I feel, as a story, both because it's obviously written by you as my countrywoman and it heavily relies on that. But we had some chats while you were writing it and you were getting through your own uh, writer's block. And I was writing Finding Eliza and I had my own writer's block and we'd talk about your work. And then I'd go, it was almost like, talking to you freed me to finish my book. And I had the same thing. I'd been working on this book. It took me 10 years. And I just want to acknowledge that, that that generous kind of exchange around the creative practice is another aspect of your work. I mean, the book's completely different. It's a nonfiction book, Finding Eliza. But there was something about the synergy of being able to have a creative conversation that actually was really impactful on me in terms of my own creativity. And it does strike me that you're very generous with how you engage with other people and other creatives. And I suppose that must be something that comes from the collaboration of of, um, songwriting. Yeah, I reckon. Uh, We're really good at uh, making, we're really good at making actually musicians, uh, making together. We're not so good about talking about how we get there. And jams and things, everyone jumps on and that's the way because if music is your currency, the way you can value someone is to offer that and and then the making's over. And we don't often talk about how we get to um, decision-making in our music. And I think as musicians we suffer for that, but that time, you know, when I was like... I was like a little ant looking up at the top of a mountain, sitting with you and being not just next to somebody who had done it before, but someone who um, is encouraging you to and telling you you will get there was the most amazing gift. And I think as blackfellas, we need to do that more with each other because we provide a lot of advice and guidance to people outside of our culture, but we also need to feed each other and the ways that we do things. And that was a beautiful time for me. And I can see that we have to keep echoing that with as many people as we can as we go on in our creative lives. Yeah, have the coffee with you and I'd run home and get <laughs> get, get writing. Um, but speaking of writing, I just want to um, see what you're working on now. Mm. Well, I'm doing... Um, my second book. See, if I talk about it, it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I've done a lot of words, but I'm sort of trying as you do. I think I'm learning. It's not about you making a story. And I think I also I am very grateful that the story is already there. I've just got to try and find it. I, I, I feel strongly that, you know, when you're compelled to write or sing or whatever, we come from a very long line of people who have done that before and also a very long line of people who have loved us. So the end result is already there. It's the path that you take to connect to it. So anyway, long long way to say I'm writing my second book and I was on a train, Stanmore, to um, Redfern and I was listening to these two ladies talk about they were looking for a house, you know, and this house didn't have enough bedrooms and this place too many, not enough square feet and... And she said, we've seen this place that we like and we're going to show the kids. If they like it, we'll put in a bid and, you know, then the universe will decide. And I thought, that's not how the universe works. And thinking, you know, how the universe works. And then the, then the train went, stand clear, doors closing, Redfern Station. And I thought, well, if we're talking about the universe here, then I knew there was a little baby um, that was born to Benelong and Barangaroo who passed away after only months of living and her name was Dilbung. She is the bell bird, so I'm going to write something inspired by that little baby because she's the universe. Amazing. I think that is a story that has to be told. 
Well, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> Bellbird, she can fly on my shoulder and tell me what I've got to do. Um, for people who haven't read Song of the Crocodile, how do you describe what the story's about? It's an intergenerational story of people and country and love and grief. And it came to me, you know, my dad and his family, they lived out on the outskirts of Walgut. They weren't allowed in town. They lived at a place called Monkeela Bend on the river. And they talk about it like it's Buckingham Palace, you know. They had everything they wanted, but it was just tin and hessian. And I used to get annoyed and say, you didn't have any, you were not allowed to have anything, but they insist on talking about that as the golden years. So I wanted to write that place so I could feel what they felt. And the story sort of came from there about um, being connected yet dislocated and how that echoes into the future. Yeah. The sense of country is really strong in your writing. But it's also something that I think comes through very much in how you continue to be grounded as a ULRI woman. How does it, how does it work for you to be so strongly um, enmeshed in ULRI culture? You're fluent in the language. One of our, you must be one of our most fluent speakers. I'm in awe. My brother's in awe. But yet here you are in Gadig- on Gadigal. And just for, that, that, I mean, you really do live between these worlds or you occupy multi, multiple worlds. Um, how has that developed as you've become immersed in language and started to learn language and really been one of the champions for reclaiming our language? Very kind. Uh, the reason I can speak so well is because I rehearse all the time and I rehearse the songs that I make in lingo, but I see myself very much as in conversation with language. So it's not um, a set of kind of um, structures and words that I need to master. I will always be um, a kindergartner in the great power and presence of our language. And I think ensuring that relationship that I, there is more that I will, there's so so much I will never know, enables me to move humbly within that kind of huge swirling vortex of um, tongue and lip and ear and spirit. So I choose to have a relationship with language that means I am always learning and I it's I always and I'm like that with land too like I'm always thinking or talking or digesting or flipping or about these things because it's so rich and sustaining to me. I sort of think that's why I've got no friends, you know, because I talk to language and land all the time. There's no humans around. I just have these, you know, interactions with those things that mean so much to me and then the writing and the music is a way for me to be in places that my body isn't. When I sing, I can be on the edge of the Narran River or whatever or at the edge of Sydney Harbour. There's power in those modalities that mean I have, it's like the tunnel at Central that I got lost in today. I can always move in that way towards those things. It just makes sense to me in my life. It probably sounds a little bit weird, but an open stream of communication to place and language and cultural concept is how I choose to live my life anyway. I feel quite emotional hearing you say that because we, you know, we're from the same nation and growing up, this was considered a dead language. Mm. There was, I mean, one of the things my dad did when he was out on country was try and collect words, mm. just sometimes on scraps of paper, still find, mm. um, you know, old exercise books where he's captured words and, mm. and, to hear you sing a story in our language is actually incredibly profound. It's more than just, I mean, you're, you've explained your 
cultural positioning and your practice. But it's something more than that. It is an example of the regeneration of our cultures. It's part of a huge movement of cultural regeneration. And I wonder what your reflection is yourself from being able to perform and speak and and tell story in that language mm. from where it was when we were kids mm. and what people thought the the mm. destiny was of mm. of our language mm. and our culture yeah i mean how much change in our lifetime it's amazing actually to think that now we have conversations um back to non-indigenous people and linguists and anthropologists that say the idea of our language being lost. We didn't misplace anything. We weren't careless about anything. We didn't not take care of it. It was systematically taken from us. Yet, and this is the beauty, I think, of our old people and our land, wherever you're from, and our, the strength in our communities for especially New South Wales languages to come back up, you know, and to say, and the way, you know, it's a beautiful thing too to show how languages work, this idea, that's why I say I'm in relationship to language because it waits for us and it can sing and feed and talk to us while it waits and, you know, I'm nothing special. I just have time to do these things and people will be much better and much more fluent than me and in time to come. And that's because uh, of the strength of those things that our old people cared for, for us. So um, uh, this is like the tip of the iceberg and it's beautiful, you know, and go out to Lightning Ridge and this at the language nest, you know, I'll never forget. There was a big long word on, just printed out on a printer page, stuck on the wall. And I asked Scylla Strazzi, Scylla, what's that? She said, oh, a lot of people are asking us about a word for love. How do we say I love you? And then there's these beautiful conversations about, well, this Western romantic idea of love we don't have, but our language holds a different relationship and the, those Language heroes out at Lightning Ridge had um, had created a word from our um, language, winning a lay layer, the continued respect, listening, remembering, thinking, understanding, shared between two. So that's how we now say love, and it means so much more. And that's from you know from the red dirt plains of Lightning Ridge a whole world of a way to be and language was waiting for that translation. So how can you, how can you not be excited and how can you not sing when language talks in those ways? Well, on that, <laughs> would you like to sing something? I'd love to. I really would. <laughs> Just happened to have a ukulele <laughs> handy. I know. I walk around like a nerd with this. Uh, this, so this song actually this is about a really important place um, for us, Narran Lakes Nature Reserve, we call Duddy War. And when I was first learning, trying to find old um, Uallarai melodies, I found some tapes in Iatsis, uh, Uncle Fred Reese. He, um, he had recorded in language the creation of Narran Lake. And so the language that I sing in this are four lines of him reciting the creation of Duddy War. And so from his tongue in the 80s to now, to your ears, wherever you are, that's how it works and still continues. Duddy calls me Dissolves into red country and I 
Beautiful. You can't hear it, but across Australia, people are applauding. (laughs) (laughs) It does strike me, though, just I was thinking about um, how you talked about the response to to your book, that actually there is such a huge difference in your role as a performer where you're engaging with an audience and seeing their reaction and then a book people take yeah. home and read yeah. it. Yeah. Has that been a, a strange thing to get used to? Yeah, I love it. I love it that it exists outside of me and that I don't have to um, shape the way people um, respond. And, you know, it's really good for me because, you know, up until writing, I live for the claps. <laughs> <laughs> and now the story is the boss. Yeah. There has been such an evolution of your storytelling um, over the years and particularly with the immersion you now have in language. What do you think your future will look like? Wow. This is the artist's curse because you just go from thing to thing and then you have great ideas and then you follow that and this is sort of like, you know, the world is no bigger than the tip of your nose, which is, you know, where all these ideas come from. I hope that my future includes slow time in beautiful places. That's enough for me. And actually with um, um, people that I love and songs and stories and things will oscillate around that, but slow time in beautiful places with beautiful people. That'll do me. The other aspect of your work that I just want to note is that the other place our paths cross from time to time is you and I are both on a panel at the Australia Council, which is now called Creative Australia. And I do want to acknowledge that because that is work that you do that is focused on building a very vibrant First Nations arts and culture sector. It's about kind of building the ecology around our creative, our creativity and our creatives. 
The new cultural policy for Australia talks about First Nations culture being central. And I wondered for you, as a Uallari woman, musician, songwriter, storyteller, what does that mean and what should that look like? Mm. I think a lot about these things and those panels, you know, I, I kind of I walk in, it's like a big cave, you know, uh, dark sometimes and scary. But what I can add maybe is the small specific voice of artistry or, you know, small one-off artists doing things in little corners of places where you can. And I am at the point in my creative life now where I realise that, you know, a profession, a career as an artist is one thing. Also, the creativity of community is something different again. And so I think the more dancing and singing and making that communities can do, the better able we are to say First Nations first because I think this there's a, a really interesting dance between the individual pursuit of a creative career and communities making. And I think sometimes, uh, definitely for me, this has been part of my um, story, that the performative act or the recording act or the published act has a lot of weight on it and we then kind of channel our efforts towards those things. But what about people who are deadly storytellers and don't write? And what about people who are amazing musicians and don't record? So there's really the creative health of communities in community making outside of self is really important. And the more I think, you know, people like me who've been given great opportunities can go and feed back into communities and encourage communal singing and communal writing and communal storytelling, the better able we're able, we can then say, you know, this is First Nation First because we're all doing it. It's not, you know, a couple of really deadly artists overseas or in Sydney or in Melbourne. Look, the mob is doing it and they're, they're showing us the right ways to do it. So this dance between, you know, that really kind of, I don't want to say self-centred, being an artist is not really that, but this kind of singular maker versus a collective movement is something that I would be really interested in us moving towards. We started our chat with your reflections of being on Gadigal and going near the water. Through our chat, you've talked about the role of the river in your storytelling. Just finally, you continue to have a connection to country that you take quite seriously in terms of caring for it. And I wonder if you could just share with us about the work you've been involved in with communities restoring polluted waterways and why that remains such a big part of your work mm. and your commitment to country. Mm. Well, uh, my sister Lucy, who's all, you know, also she's a beautiful artist, uh, we were up in Walgett when the rivers ran dry. Larissa, I can't, you know, and we're out of towners in that sense. We don't live there. But uh, we come down here and say we're freshwater river people and there was no freshwater river. So then what are we? And that was a, a, a shocking moment for me because I thought, well, the thing that defines me is no longer, and that's me being self-centred artist, then what about the mob in town who have no water and no clean drinking water and, you know, that, that if singing and storying is well-being and they come from the country that sustain, sustains us, it, it's an obligation to work to make sure that those places operate the way they need to, you know, and it, there's a lot of things come into my mind, you know. I've been starting to say, you know, I am the flood. I'm a floodplain person. I am the flood. I'm, 
too much a lot of the time and I'm everything all at once. But this idea of flood being something that we barricade ourselves against in a Yolari sense is actually no flood is what we need. That excess and that bigness or the overflow is what that place needs. And so always constantly having to readjust what uh, is good and needed and dangerous and not good in those terms. The flood is good. It's not good for the town that's plonked itself in the middle of a floodplain, but it is good for... Dari war doesn't happen unless there's flood. That huge creation place and big ceremony place and big bird breeding place doesn't happen unless the excess comes. So, um, you know, I always offer a song or a story for the well-being of country wherever I can and also offer the that spirit of wellness and relationship to the people who are on the ground doing it every day. That's what I want to do, but also if I call myself Iwalari, that's what i got to do. Thank you so much for your voice, the cultural work you're doing, regenerating our nation and I'm talking about Iwalari, but also the work you're doing nationally for the ecology of our creative space. And I've just loved you as a countrywoman. I love you as a countrywoman. And it's been such a privilege to have you here on Speaking Out, yarning and performing so that the rest of Australia can see why it is that I love you so much. Thank you so much, Nadi Simpson. Larissa, winning a Leia, my biggest continuing love and respect and acknowledgement and listening and thinking and remembering to you always. With these beautiful words, Nadi, can we get you to... Give us one more song, one more tune. Absolutely, love to. This song is called Yarigameira, and Yarigameira is the um, east wind that comes across into Yuwalari country that brings the softest of rain, uh, that then kisses open the flowers um, in the, in that flowering season. And Yarigameira happened because some old fellas went on a, a trek uh, to find more beauty. They wanted to leave more beauty in Yualarai country before they left and they asked great creator and he sent Yarigameira to them which bought uh, the breeze, the rain, the flowers, the breeze, the rain, the flowers for generations after they passed away. They give us this continuing cycle of beauty. Of thy army. 
gently the east wind blossoms on the round old plains of dust men bring back the flowers to That's Nadi Simpson taking us out with another song on her ukulele in the studio. Nadi's a Uwalari storyteller and performer living on Gadigal land. That's the show for now. Join us again next time as we bring you an in-depth recap on the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.